dismiss them to children's ministry. Um, there's a story in Luke 21, the beginning of Luke 21, uh, that we commonly think of as the widow's mite story. Jesus is at the temple and a lot of wealthy people are dropping money into the uh, temple offering plate. And then a widow comes and she gives her last mites, uh, her last cents into the plate. And, and Jesus in that moment says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they've contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Uh, I don't think that story is in the Bible, just in case we happen to have a few really poor widows here this morning. Uh, I don't think it's that, that specific. I think the idea, actually, is that every person in this room is a widow in some area. That every person in this room has the widow's might predicament in a particular area of their lives where you feel like you just don't have a lot to give. And it's just like God to put his thumb on that area saying, this is where I want you to give. There, there are all kinds of areas where you're not the widow in your life. And uh, you'd be happy to give a little more out of those places. But it's just like God to come and put his thumb right on the one place where you feel the most poor the most stretched thin and say, this is, this is what I want you to give. And I think for me, uh, the widow's might is time. My might, M-I-T-E, is my time. It's the thing I feel I have the least of. It's the thing I feel the most stretched thin in. It's the, it's the, it's the resource that God has given me that I feel the poorest in. And I don't think that I'm alone in that respect. I know that many of you would probably say that if you were going to identify with the widow and look at one area of your life that you feel like you just don't have a lot to give, it would probably be time. I think this is true for many of us. Now, I know I'm not hitting everybody here when I talk about that. Some of you have more time. And I want to make sure that you don't dare feel ashamed or less than for having more time. Our culture has this terribly evil equivalency between busyness and value. And somehow a bunch of us have been talked into thinking that we're more valuable the busier we are. So that when you ask people how they're doing and they say busy, what they're trying to tell you is they're important. Uh, so if you're not busy, if you have lots of time, I don't want you to dare think that you're less than. I want you to, but I do want you to think that you are very rich in something that other people are not so rich in. And this is a great thing. It's a great thing to be rich in free time. And the cool thing about being rich in free time is that you have a lot of freedom to figure out how you're going to give that away. But make no mistake, if it's you here who are rich in free time, you need to give it away. It's there for you to lay on the altar just like every other kind of wealth is. So I'm talking mostly to us today who would say, uh, my might is my time. The one thing I feel like I don't have to give have to give is time. I feel extremely stretched thin there. I'm speaking to you mostly, but I want to make sure to speak to those who are in a season of life where you have a lot of free time. I don't want you to feel less than because you're not, but I want you to feel rich because you are. And I want you to see that that extra time you have is given to you by God so that you can lay it down on the altar and worship him in that way with it. But I do think for the majority of us here this morning, uh, we are uh, we are poor in time. So this is a big deal because 
Uh, Some of us might have money to give, but feel like we don't have time to give. And I just want to remind you on the outset that uh, your time is far more influential and powerful in God's kingdom work than your money. We need both, but your time, God, here's the thing. God uh, sometimes uses tools, sometimes uses technology, sometimes God uses buildings, and sometimes God uses programs, sometimes. But God has promised 100% of the time to use his people. So, so your money is welcome and thank you for it, but we need you. The kingdom needs you. And all of this is a way of introducing uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47 again this morning. And a particular phrase that shows up there that is quite challenging to those of you in the space this morning who feel like the one thing you don't have to give is time. Uh, I'll start reading in verse 42 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You can already see a commitment to time spending time doing those activities. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, as any had need. And here's the, here's the kicker, verse 46. This will really, really stick in the craw of those of you that feel like you don't have much time. Verse 46, and day by day, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what do you make of this reference in verse 46 to day by day gathering of the saints? Well, as a busy person, I kind of hoped it was a figure of speech. I kind of hoped that maybe this was one of those moments. Was, you know, you can imagine that as a figure of speech. You know, as time passed on, day by day, just being a representation of as time went along. Uh, so I thought maybe, well, you know, it could be a figure of speech. It might not be that they were meeting every single day together. But you know what? That doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, Acts 5.42 gives us a really specific declaration and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the christ is jesus acts 6 1 uh this is where the eruption between the uh, widows occurs the the the, the the jewish widows seem to be getting more food or better food than the greek-speaking widows and the key there in that in that passage is that they are upset about the way that the daily distribution of food is going on. So uh, my hope that this day by day in Acts 2 might just be a figure of speech is not the case. It does appear that the early Christians met every day to encourage one another to fellowship and to pray and walk through the word together. Now this daily fellowship, this idea that the saints are together all the time, shows up a lot in the early Christian writings that aren't in the Bible. So there's an epistle that's attributed to Barnabas that didn't make it into the canon. And in in that epistle, used frequently in the first century church, it says, you shall remember the day of judgment, good advice, night and day. And what's the means of application 
this ancient document prescribes for remembering the day of judgment night and day. You shall seek out every day the faces of the saints. One of the most important Christian documents in the early church says it again. Every day, seek out the faces of the saints so that you may be refreshed by their words. So as we examine and, and, and really have lingered in Acts 2 for quite some time, and we look at the difference in power, we look at the difference in fruitfulness, and we look for reasons to explain this, boy, I think we'd really be kind of dumb if we didn't ask that perhaps one of the main reasons for explaining this particular occurrence of power and intention was their daily gathering. I think there's probably something to that. So what I want to do this morning, because this is, what, this is just another call to give. We've been walking through these calls to generosity. And this is a call for you to be generous with your time. Be intentional with seeking out the saints daily, right? And the call to do that is a call to the, deep, the deepest and truest desires placed in your heart by Christ Jesus. So I want to give you this morning four reasons why... The Bible teaches that we should be far more intentional in spending time in fellowship with the saints. So the first one is something I kind of covered in the introduction, and that is that the higher the cost, the greater the love. Uh, The widow in Luke 21 was praised by Jesus because she gave what she didn't really have to give. She gave what she felt like she couldn't spare. And I want to tell you that as life ramps up at particular seasons, and you really do feel extraordinarily stretched thin, you will be in that widow's position regarding whether or not you use your time, the little time and energy you have to to connect with other believers, to step into the kingdom, to invest your time into the kingdom. But the truth is, is that the higher the cost, the greater the love. That's what Jesus is getting at back in John 15. We looked at this passage last week when Jesus says, greater love has no man than someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, I think that we're all alike in the same way, in the sense that we, we, we look at a passage like that and, and think of the cross, or we think of the apostles' martyrdom, and we think of this one momentous moment when a saint of God chooses to lay down their physical life for the sake of their friends, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of their church, and so on and so forth. But of course, we have to be constantly reminded that a far more heroic aspect of love kinds of winds up being just your daily laying down of your life for your friends. And I would like you to begin thinking of this verse both as a reference to the cross, but also as a reference to all the time Jesus invested in people when he himself had so little time to spare. I want you to begin thinking about this verse when you begin to decide whether or not you'll seek out the saints in the evening hours after you're done with work, after you feel like you have no more energy to give, no more time to spare, no more attention, no more encouragement. I want you to begin thinking about how In those moments when you feel the most poor as it relates to time and energy, you could really express great love by stepping out in your poverty of energy and time 
and seeking the face of the saints. I think for many of us, this is, in terms of a daily choice, this is the biggest act of quote-unquote sacrifice that God places before us on a regular basis to give more of our time to people who are seeking it. Um, There are obviously two ways to lay down your life, and one of them may never happen to you, and the other one, the daily question about whether or not you'll invest your time into the kingdom and into others will come to you every single day. This question will come to you every single day. Will you give your life into service for the kingdom? So that's the first reason. Uh, you You should really strongly consider giving more of your time to seeking out the face of the saints because it's costly. I know it is. I know many of you are stretched quite thin. And that costly act that act of getting up off the couch after you sat down on the couch, which is like really hard, uh, that act can be a signifier of great love. Uh, number two, the second reason. Well, you already have uh, three daily drop-ins. So if you're uh, in an office, you know that drop-ins are the bane of your existence, and if you have enough of them, you will never get any work accomplished. So the idea is that you're, you've got a pile of work, and you've got to move through this work, but then throughout the day, people kept ste- kept keep stepping in and handing you more work or asking you questions and so on and so forth so that your original pile of work never moves and you've got more work because of these daily drop-ins. Drop-ins aren't the friend of the, the, the business person uh, and neither are they <laughs> the friend of the Christian in one respect. There are three daily drop-ins that you will have every day of your life till the day you die. And First John chapter 2 discusses these from verse 12 through 17, three unwelcome visitors who will drop in constantly throughout the day. They will not knock. They will not ask. They will not uh, send a a calendar invite. And those three drop-ins are the word, the flesh, and the devil. Whether or not you see your brother or sister in Christ every day, you will see these three unwelcomed drop-in visitors every day of your life. And so it is both sound and proper for the early church to say that you should use fellowship with the saints as an antidote to these three daily visitors with which you must constantly contend. In, in AD 105, so, so pretty early on, Ignatius writes this. He says, for when you assemble frequently in the same place, the power of Satan is destroyed. Let your assembling together be a frequent occurrence. So some of us have, a, well, I think all of us have this sort of Scoville unit uh, feeling about Scripture. Scoville unit says how hot a pepper tastes. And so there's like a Caribbean a habanero, and it's super, super hot. And then there's like a, a green pepper, and it's almost not hot at all. As you spend time walking with Jesus throughout your life and, and engaging in his word, There will be many days when the Bible feels utterly bland, utterly not hot. (laughs) The realities, the promises, the truth of Jesus, the reality that Jesus is king right now, reigning over the world at the right hand of the Father, these things will seem to you to be extremely not hot, extremely not powerful, extremely not punchy. What is the functional antidote to get through those days 
when the word of God, the promises of God, the truth of Jesus and the gospel seem weak? Well, historically and biblically, the antidote for these seasons in which God seems distant and the truth of God seems weak is to associate with, to gather together with the saints. And this makes a ton of sense because what you're looking at is the physical expression of the body of Jesus. What you're looking at is another person walking with the Holy Spirit. We have great dangers related to bitterness and that bitterness will visit us frequently throughout the day, throughout the years, and it can pop up related to anything. The question is, well, how do I deal with this visitor, this, this specific visitor under the category of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, listen to what Hebrews 3 says, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a responsibility toward one another to help one another see the reality of God as real and pressing and true and glorious and central. And the approach we have been given by God is to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the second reason for seeking the saints more frequently, for dropping that last bit of time you think you have into the kingdom offering plate is that you've already got, and each one of us have already got, some drop-in visitors, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need some counter-visitors to voice the truth and light of God in their stead. Number three, third reason the Bible gives for seeking time with the saints is the magic of mutual encouragement. So there was a business book written years ago called The Magic of Thinking Big. And it's kind of one of those, it's a predictable book. It's a good one, I guess, but it's a predictable in the sense that the whole idea is that if you aim high and you miss, you still will have achieved much more than you ever expected to achieve. And, and so the idea is, is that if you invest your time in pursuing big things, even when you miss the big things, you'll wind up hitting slightly big things. Well, friends, when it comes to seeking out fellowship with the saints, you're going to experience something that Paul describes in Romans 1, 9 through 12. Paul's about to write this amazing letter to the Romans. But it's all undergirded, not only with theological capacity, but with genuine affection for these people. Boy, I think that so much theology that we deal with these days does not flow out of pastoral love. And it just doesn't feel right. It can be true, but it just doesn't feel right. And so Romans is one of those places where this amazing theology, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
flows out of pastoral love. But listen to what Paul the Apostle, the writer of the book of Romans, says in verses 9 through 12. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is expecting that when he finally gets to be with the Romans, he will not only be imparting a gift to them, but that he will be receiving a gift from them in their fellowship. The gospel is all about the glorious exchange, right? It's all about the exchange. And so there's three levels, I think, at least of this exchange. And one of them is the exchange of honor between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in this triune community, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit exchange honor and love for one another. And this has been the reality forever. Out of this is born the gospel in which Jesus comes to earth, takes on flesh, lives as a man, tempted in every way without, yet without sin. And Jesus goes to the cross, taking our sin in exchange for the righteousness of Christ. So that's the second exchange. The, accept, the second exchange is the exchange of sin for, for righteousness. So we're built, this whole Christian thing is built in an exchange system. And then finally, when we get to the reality of a bunch of brothers and sisters living together, walking together, seeking one another out regularly, we see another exchange happen, and that is simply the exchange of mutual benefit from one brother to the other as they spend time together. That's glorious. Here's, here's something I thought about, and I really made sure I didn't uh, say something that was uh, you know, uh, lightning bolt worthy. I don't ever want to lie from the pulpit, even if it's well-intentioned. Uh, so I think, I'm, I think I'm clear on the lightning bolt front. Uh, let me say this with as much sincerity as I can. Obviously, I've had more Christian conversations, more conversations with Christians than many people. And I cannot remember ever having an extended conversation with another believer where I did not learn something about God. Okay, let's just think about that for a minute. I mean, I... I that I, if if I'm if I'm still alive, <laughs> uh, just think about that for a minute. People will come because they're struggling. Almost no one ever, almost no one ever seeks me out because they're not struggling. Sometimes they do. So, but let's just imagine the worst case scenario. Let's imagine. Let's go back to the time ten years ago when I sat across from a man who was addicted to methamphetamines. How is it possible that this conversation in which it appears on paper, I am simply there to help this man. How is it possible that I, in that moment, would be encouraged, admonished, see my sin more clearly, see God's grace more clearly? I cannot tell you of a single instance, and I, and I did think of one exception, and I'll, I'll give that in a minute, but I honestly do not believe I have ever been in a consistent conversation with another Christian, no matter what they were struggling with, no matter how hard their life was, no matter how pronounced their sin, no matter how dark their darkness was, 
where I did not learn something about God and about myself. There's one exception. And that is people who claim to be Christians but have zero interest in talking about their heart, their sin, or Christ. But then I think, well, I kind of learned something about that too because that's not entirely off of where I am sometimes. The truth is, is that one of the reasons why you should be actively seeking to give your last two cents worth of time into fellowship and community is because you're going to get something back. Paul, the apostle Paul, is anticipating when he visits the Romans that he will impart a gift to them and they will impart a gift to him. Here's number four reason. There is a lag time between sowing and reaping. A lag time between sowing and reaping. We've been talking about this a lot. All of life really does seem to kind of come down to that basic principle of falling down like a seed dying so that God can raise you up. And that's the, that's the gospel. Jesus is a seed. He's planted in the ground. He dies, right? He's planted in the ground and he blooms forth into eternal abundant fruit forever on the third day. All of life kind of comes down to this thing where in big ways and small ways, we die to ourselves and we wait. And then in God's proper time, we are lifted up. That's kind of what 1 Peter 5 is getting at when it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that in due time he may exalt you or lift you up. This is the basic rhythm of fruitfulness. We die to ourselves. We lay some sacrifice on the altar. And then eventually that sacrifice, that seed blooms and bears much fruit. But here's the kicker. Jesus' parable about the sower reminds us that a whole lot of mischief can happen in between the time that the seed goes into the ground and it blooms and bears much fruit. There is an exceedingly fragile, tentative experience of choosing by faith to die to self in ways big and small, and then waiting however long it takes for God to turn that seed of faith, that seed of sacrifice into fruit. I mean, you don't need fruit. You don't need faith to see the fruit. And, and, and a lot of times, this is how I feel, a lot of times it took all the faith I had to get into the ground in the first place. You know, that feels like the big step. But, I, but actually, in Christianity, I, I think we mostly fail not to fail to, to, to fall to the ground and die. We fail in that, that waiting time, that lag time between choosing to die to self and waiting for God to vindicate that choice with fruitfulness. There's a lag time there. And almost always we self-abort the process. Almost always we pull ourselves up out of the ground and say, well, this isn't working. Never mind. Do you know how big of a problem that is for us? I wonder if you can think of specific moments where you walked into the house choosing that you were just going to have a whole different disposition towards your spouse, for instance. And you did it and you did it and then you did it and then you stopped because it wasn't working. Or you had a, 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 a renewed commitment to generosity and then you started giving and then things got tight and you pulled that seed right out of the ground. Ooh, that's, that's rough. No. Or, or 
you thought, you know, I need to change this physical habit in my life, and I need to get up earlier so that I can spend time with God, or I need to grow in prayer. And you start investing in that, but there's really no fruit that comes from it. And so uh, the seed gets plucked back up out of the dirt because of the lag time between planting and reaping. You know, uh, technology's conditioned us to be able to uh, get feedback so quickly. And we're becoming more and more accustomed to getting feedback more quickly because technology allows us to do that. And so we're kind of becoming conditioned to try something and expect some kind of a result almost immediately. But that's just not really how it works in life. You know, you could put yourself into massive debt in a couple months if you, if you really try. Uh, but it could take you years to get out of that debt. You've made the right decision. I'm going to get out of debt. You've made the decision. But then all of the accumulated work that must take place, all of the waiting on God to turn that decision into fruit, well, that's a rough period of time. The same is true with, with restoring relationships. The same is true with correcting behaviors you've allowed to go too long, both in your life or in your children's lives. It's just this kind of constant challenge. There's this big gap. And man, what do we do with that gap? Well, Galatians 6 speaks of this pretty specifically. I've come to realize that the uh, epistles themselves are in many respects pastoral expressions of don't give up. (laughs) Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't pull that seed out of the ground. You just leave that seed right there. And so in Galatians 6, Paul writes in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now I want to pause there for a minute and just say, God is not mocked in two respects. If you are sowing to the flesh, you will reap the flesh. But neither is God mocked in the sense that if you sow into the Spirit, he will not vindicate his promise. And the little three drop-in visitors, the word, the flesh, and the devil, with the day that you decide to make the change, whatever the change is, the day you decide to make the change, your three little drop-in visitors, the word, the flesh, and the devil, are going to start mocking God. And they're going to start telling you, you have thrown this seed into the dirt for nothing. Nothing is going to come of this. In fact, if you will pay attention, your life will be getting worse. So this, this, uh, this problem of lag time is compounded by the problem that we have these three drop-in visitors that come and mock God. So uh, Galatians 6, Paul's saying, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. That's the principle. God is not mocked on both fronts. He is not mocked. If you sow into the flesh, you will reap the flesh. He is not mocked. If you sow into the spirit, he will bring forth increase in the spirit. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And then he says, verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Friends, you need people to not to tell you that. And you need to tell people that. Don't get weary. Don't get weary in doing good. Don't pull that seed out of the ground. 
It's right where it should be. God will not be mocked. You've sown into the Spirit. You've tried to obey His Word. Just hang on a little longer. Just hold on. I know this waiting period is hard, but God will not be mocked. Don't grow weary in doing good. And I believe with all my heart that if you were to make it a practice to go out to your brothers and sisters and do this on the daily, as the kids say, if you were to go out and make a practice to do this daily, what's going to happen every time you say those words in one way or another, don't give up. Leave that seed right there. God's not going to be mocked. This is good. Those words are going to come right back into your own heart, and you're going to receive encouragement and reminder even as you remind someone else. And there will be this magic of mutual encouragement that occurs when we seek out the face of the saints. So I want to be clear. I'm not asking for you to modify your life. I'm asking for you to revolutionize your life. I'm I'm saying I know you are weak. And I know you have little strength on the time front. And I'm telling you, don't, God, God is, has a wonderful sense of humor and justice. And he is putting his thumb right on that thing right now. And he's saying, if you will trust me with the little energy you have, if you will trust me with the little time you have, some of you are introverted introverts. There's a great book called Sticky Church where a guy talks about community groups and uh, he talks about people like Legos. And there are people like my wife that are those long Legos and they have like 10 pegs that can be connected to. They can maintain so many connections and relationships and uh, 10's not even close to her. Uh, And then some of you are like that one little Lego. (laughs) Or, you know, you're like the two, the two, the two Lego. Um, and by the way, the little ones are the ones that hurt when you step on them, just so you know. Anyway, uh, so there's, there's theological implications there. Uh, uh, don't step on an introvert. Anyway, um, some, of you are, some of you are built by God to only have a couple of Lego blocks. And, and that's who you are. And I'm going to tell you point blank, like, that is where you start. And you give every last square millimeter of your Lego your relational Lego capacity to Jesus in faith. Do it. Be the widow. Put it all out there. Give when you don't think you have anything to give. Lean in to the lives of your brothers and sisters when you think that you have zero. And if you give this, you won't have anything left. Trust God. Watch what he does. Watch what he does with that. He will bring so much more blessing into your life than you ever thought possible simply by your commitment to love what he loves. Last week we said, maybe you could say that Christianity in a single sentence is to love God with your whole being by loving people with your whole being. That's what we're talking about. And we're saying that for many of us, 
the most costly way to love is to give our time away when we feel like we have none. I was thinking this week about Elijah and his beautiful, I'm so glad God put this in scripture, his beautiful meltdown in 1 Kings chapter 19. This powerful, mighty man of God doing powerful works, seeing amazing fruitfulness, but he is burnt out and exhausted. He is just undone. And through the course of chapter 19, he has a series of encounters and conversations with God, and God ministers to him, and one of the basic ways he ministers to him is gives him a nap. Amen. But after the nap, God's main way of dealing with Elijah's great discouragement was to tell him he was not alone. That's one of Elijah's main complaints. Friends, the the other side of the despair coin is always loneliness. And most of us, when we are despairing, look really terrible and we're really gross looking and we want to hide. And so we, we, we inflict even more loneliness on ourselves. But Elijah is, is despairing. He says, I alone remain faithful to the one true God. And God says, it's not true. There are 7,000 more who have not bent their knee to this false God. And that's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that you're not walking alone, struggling alone, suffering alone, that there are lots of other people who love Jesus, that Jesus is real to a whole bunch of other people because, friends, those drop-in guests, every time you watch Netflix and so forth and you're just, you're just rubbing elbows with the world, it's like they're all telling you that all of this is nothing. And so part of the encouragement that God brings to Elijah is, it's not true, you're not alone, you really aren't. But then he does something with this tired, old, despairing man that I think God's going to do to us. He makes him go out and seek out a man named Elisha. That's God's first call to action in response to his loneliness and despair. Intellectually, he says, there are lots of men out here who have not bend their knee. There are lots of people out here who are following me. And that's one level of encouragement. But that encouragement and care from God is not complete until Elijah is sent out to find a man named Elisha and to walk with a brother for the rest of his days through his ministry. And that's what God's calling us to this morning. Yes, you're tired. Yes, your time is extraordinarily precious. But will you be like that widow this morning in faith saying, I yield it all to you, Lord. I yield it all to you. You have commanded in a variety of ways that I press in to the saints. And I'm going to do that even though I feel like I have nothing left to give. Let me pray for us, and then I'll introduce the table.
Well, gracious God, I do pray for a revolution in our approach to time. We very quickly, without realizing it, move into a scarcity mentality where we look at the things we have the least of and we hoard them. And uh, that's exactly the opposite of what you want us to do. When we see things that we have few of, you, you put your thumb right on those things and say, give me that, just give me that. Give me this costly thing out of your love for me and I will bless you and I will bless the world. So Lord, let us be like this widow with our time. Father, I pray God for those that maybe don't feel like they're super pressed for time. Lord, help them to see that in no way this sermon is not about them because they are rich in this resource and need to give freely. Lord, I pray for the people who are lonely and outcast and feel like they have no one. Lord, like Elijah, would you help them to see, first of all, they're wrong, and secondly, that they should use the last bit of their strength to go out and find people to fellowship with, to do life with. And there are people in this room, Lord, who are ready to do that. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you used your time as we'll talk about in a moment. In your name we pray.